Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have Sam Conitalende here with me. Welcome to my podcast, Sam. Thank you very much indeed, Vesna. It's a pleasure to be here. As a way of intro, Sam is a multi-award-winning serial entrepreneur with 10 startups to his name. He's also the best-selling author of Be More Pirate. He's also a consultant. He's a coach and sought-after public speaker on innovation, entrepreneurship, marketing, leadership, and youth. So, Sam, let's kick off with your recently launched book on how to create good trouble. I love that expression and the way you <laughs> you write about it. So be more pirate. How would you describe, you know, what is it actually for and who is it for? It's a good question because I don't think I knew that when I was writing it. So if I'm being really honest, it's a slightly retrofitted strategy. I was writing it in the year that I was enacting my planned transition out of the longest running agency I've ever had. It's heading towards its 18th birthday. And so I needed a project. I needed a project that would kind of capture my attention, that would give me focus to give my new team that were taking over some space. And really it was a place to kind of shout all of my perspectives of 20 years in social enterprise, in working in innovation, and particularly like this moment in time, I was writing and started writing in 2016. So there's a referendum in the UK that you may have heard of. There's a new president in America you may have heard of. And the feeling of that year when, you know, now we've almost become used to this sense of chaos, but then it felt like we were really heading over the edge. And I felt so disappointed in my sector. You know, I've been almost lifelong social enterprise. You know, my belief that business can change the world. I just felt like we we had failed. I've been politically active all my life as well, and I just couldn't believe the choices that were on offer and the choices being made. I felt very practically, and I mean positively and pragmatically, that something more like a rebellion is the answer. I mean, what are we going to do? Throw our hands up or? complain or send around some funny Donald Trump memes, you know, none of which are going to change the world. And so I started shouting my opinion onto these pages. And my opinion is very much very simple. On the one hand, I think we have a vacuum of leadership in the world at the moment. I think a dearth of imagination at the highest echelons of organizations. And at the same time, almost paradoxically, we have the most emboldened and exciting upcoming generation. And I don't mean it specifically that this is an age distinction at all. I think it's a state of mind. But when I find myself outside the, the mainstream, working with young people either in the townships of South Africa or social entrepreneurs in Athens or, or entrepreneurs in Baltimore, Illinois, Detroit, Chicago, areas in the world where they've been left behind and the need for solutions is so great, those pockets of innovation, I find great optimism and energy and excitement for the future. And so... For me, a metaphor of pirates became uh, a very positive way of framing these innovators at the edges who I think there's so much to learn from. And then something very funny happened during the research. I thought, yes, I've got this kind of ni nice hook. I'll call them pirates because they're the kind of rebels. But in my research, I started to discover a true history of pirates that was written out of the history books by the establishment 300 years ago. And actually, it made them not just a metaphor, but really a manifesto for our times, because the similarities were very surprising. 
And who is this book for? Who is your message for? Could it be basically anyone? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's very, very broad. I mean, I wrote it about a mindset. Not, I was championing that rebellion in organizations who believe that there must be a way of change in people leaving the industry to start their own thing in the side hustle generation, in the frustrated social entrepreneurs trying to step into a more of an activist space and the brands that have decided to embrace purpose. Everybody is doing business as unusual. It's a, it's a call to arms because we're not connected, we're not united, we're not lined up behind some big consensual ideas. And I think it's time to be. But also, as much as it was a rallying cry to those who I think are leading the change, I was also trying to write it as a warning. History tells us time and again, if you do not act, then inaction becomes a weapon of mass destruction, as I saw written the other day. And it's not, not a choice in the, in the times that we're in. We have to make a choice as to which side we're on. And I think that's a very difficult message when complacency and acceptance of the state's quote has been uh, so commonplace for such a long time. I almost read the whole uh, your book and I made a note about this concept of business mortality, uh, you know, as a species that business as usual is kind of dying out and that there is a very interesting business fluidity going on right now. What is that fluidity going to shape, do you think? What do you see? I'm glad you picked that up. I find that really interesting as well. Um, it's just something that I came across. The business mortality rates are measured every single year. There's this really significant drop. It's always been in decline, but there's this really significant drop since the kind of 80s and 90s. And so mid-century last year, it's 65 to 70 years, and now it's 15 years. If that trend continues, we will, we're used to as kind of a project life cycle, we'll become a business life cycle. So I think it means a lot. I think it means a lot for the future of work and how we work and it becoming very commonplace to have multiple jobs going on at once. And that's quite well documented, the multi-hyphen career. But for you to actually have your feet in multiple companies, that be seen as a good thing and for your jobs to overlap. I haven't really progressed to that stage. We're still very much in, I do one day here and one day here. When that starts being organized horizontally instead of vertically, that will become very interesting. I think it means an awful lot for one of the biggest challenges that we face, this notion that scale is good. And I think the latter half of the 20th century was very much about scale in organizations because through scale, we achieve greater margins and therefore profit and largely were driven by economic models. But by the end of the 20th century, I think it began to become clear that that growth was always achieved at the cost of some degree of exploitation, typically of people or of the planet. As exploitation of people or planet becomes an unsustainable method of business, um, not just unpopular or political, but just practically and economically unsustainable. You, a new approach has to be drawn. And so I worry when I hear the social solutions or social enterprise or the resistance of business, I think, or of the, the renaissance of business, perhaps, even, when scale is given as the metric of success, and oh, well, this is a good idea, but how does it scale? Because I think the reach that's required can be achieved through this business fluidity. When networking, when really, when really collaborative working becomes the norm and we become good at it. And it's not just something that we say we like to do, but actually everybody finds a bit awkward. And then we've got a chance of designing the solutions that can be delivered at scale that don't require scaled organizations to achieve it. That, I think, is when it gets really interesting. How do you have the reach that's required to share the knowledge and the solutions that we all need? 
So the scale is kind of transferring from asset to liability in a way. Yeah, I think I took that line from, um, that is a really good article called The Paradox of Scale. Exactly that, that the big and big business was once seen as an asset. You know, we are huge, therefore we are big, strong, reliable. And we just, you know, time and again, that's been proven not to be the case. Just because you're big doesn't mean you stay on top. Just because you're big doesn't mean you'll stay in profit. Just because you're big doesn't mean you're secure. All of those preconceptions have been shattered. And increasingly, I think a more progressive and thoughtful workforce are wanting to work somewhere, you know, the benefits of being somewhere small begin to outweigh those of being big from you know, the sense of culture through to the agility, through to the ability to create have your hands on some self-determination, these things that really matter, matter more than just going to work. There is an organizationalist behaviorist that you're quoting in the book that is saying that the world doesn't change one person at a time, but actually it changes when networks or relationships uh, from amongst the people who share a common cause or a vision of what they think is possible. So it's all about, you know, relationships and and. Critical connections, as you as you talk about, which I think is very interesting. That whole community and, and tribe, uh, sense of tribe that you managed to build around an organization or company is really what will take off big change. Yeah, and I, I really believe in this person more than I did at, at the outset. And in fact, if I'm really honest, I think I used to believe that change is created by momentum and mass. You know, can I create a large enough wave with enough people behind it? And I've struggled with that. You know, my organization literally got to hundreds of people, internationally, office, and it just gets incredibly slow. You know, the, the pace of change actually slows down the more you're, you're delivering. But I've still felt that perhaps those kind of quotes were a bit glib. I worry that that was really true. But the more I've studied this, the more I've understood it, and certainly the more I've looked to how pirates really did it. When you use your a uh, smaller scale to your advantage when the, the size of the enemy is no longer a threat but a reason to fight. You know, these pirates were standing up sometimes against 40 to 5 to 1 odds. You're forced to find a different approach and it's in the united stance, the camaraderie, the drive that comes from that and the ability to articulate and instigate networks of like-minded rebels who want to stand up against the status quo, who have something to fight for, who have values that they're willing to die for, risk, then suddenly you've got something incredibly powerful. And that really, I think, is the message of our, the missing message of our times, in a disempowered moment, to reawaken the notion that actually as individuals or small collectives, it really is where power comes from. I don't think is the common mindset we have yet. It is very much the one we need. I know that you work with the many, many companies, many of them, you know, famous like, I don't know, Facebook, Google, and et cetera, et cetera. And you do a lot of also lectures, but also workshops, very concrete kind of workshops in how they could become pirate in a way. And what is it that you find when you talk to these people and work with them? What kind of bullshit rules are they finding in their own environment or elsewhere that they want to change? And what is it that they want when you get there? Yeah, I, mean, I found this really interesting. I mean, firstly, to be completely honest, I found it very surprising in much the way I was being honest about the book. I'd never had any idea that it would have commercial success it's had. And I worry sometimes if I'd known that it would have sold as well, whether or not I'd have written the book as honestly as I do. One of the things that I talk honestly in the book about is that I workshopped it. I approached this book like 
our community, a startup community, would approach a product. I did it through an agile technique. I tested it regularly, almost weekly at times, with its target audience. And I, I didn't ever fully pivot, but I certainly radically redesigned the, the product as I went through that design process. And I refer to this workshopping as an adjective in the book. But in some of the ways it was read, it was read as a noun. And I was contacted by some organizations saying, you have a workshop. We're interested in, in the book. Could you come in? And the first one was amazing. It was to go to Lego. And I hadn't delivered it as a workshop properly. Um, I certainly haven't gone to a business, and certainly not one that I respect as much as Lego, the top five businesses I'd ever want to work for in the world. And so I really had to pull my ships together. And I found it all in the book, you know, perhaps subconsciously or, or, or thereby designed by some way that I've it. I deliberately created a, a session uh, from the chapters of the book. Uh, that was called a mutiny. And whilst mutiny typically has negative associations, what I was looking for is, I think it's a, we're very used to inspirational speakers who give a talk, we feel good, and over time the impact diminishes significantly. And you might remember a line or two, but really, what remains? I'm not interested in that. I think inspiration without action is just frustration, and the world is full of that. And talk minus action equals shit. So how could I design something that would be action-orientated? So it goes back to this point about instigating small groups. So the workshops start with a narrative that everyone joins in, where you reconnect with your power to create change in the world, because everybody has, everybody has. Usually some incredible stories when they've stood up to the world and done something to make a major difference. And then we point out that we rarely bring that person to work. You know, the world's changing you. The, the person who stood up against bullies, the, the person who's done, you know, the story that you most love to tell, rarely does that person come to work. We disempower ourselves as we head into work and we devolve our decision-making to other people because that's just the way our organisations have, have been structured for 100 years. And so we, we have that conversation, remind ourselves that we are that powerful person. We, we, we then look at the reasons that we allow things to get in our way because you know, businesses, any kind of work is full of lots of barriers, difficult things, stressful things, from meetings to emails to whatever, we call them all out. And then we question whether any of them are significant or surmountable enough to really stop you know, our ambitions to do really great work. And then we take a look at the rules, you know, which rules are we currently following? And I've heard lots of bullshit ones, as you ask. But what I've not been able to do yet is find a bullshit rule that people follow that anybody wants to defend, even at the most senior levels. If you trace it back to when someone you know, talks about a practice or a bureaucratic method of reporting that everybody agrees is ridiculous, you try and find the place at which somebody with strategic foretold said, right, this is the way that we should do it. It never exists. It's a hodgepodge of precedent, power, and perspective that over time has become the behavior. The rules are rarely written down. I mean, and there are, you know, well-meant regulations. I'm not suggesting we break laws. But the kind of practices and behaviours and conventions that exist in so many of our organisations, more realistically, they should just be called bad habits. And, and when, if I was saying we should break bad habits at work, no one would challenge that. But actually, they're so ingrained, they are rules. So we start to look at those, and then the really the most important part, the most important part of the pirate story is it's fun and accessible and exciting for me to talk about pirates as rule breakers. But the golden age of pirates specifically were rule makers. They tore down the walls of a broken system and they replaced those walls with new ones that were fair, that were innovative, that were future thinking. And that's the final part of the workshop. You know? So now you're stuck, now you're involved in a mutiny, now you felt the power of small groups. 
what's your new rule in this place? And once people have suggested them, often the feedback I've got from the senior leaders or managers that have hired me into this is because the journey we've gone on, and it's designed with my understanding for being involved as a coach and mentor and a little bit of psychology. And then the feedback I get is, wow, this is the kind of stuff that I, I imagine the team talk about in the pub or in the bar after work, but nobody ever says in a meeting. And so you're tapping into that observational ability that everybody has, everyone's designed solutions in their own head or when they go home and tell their partner, why don't they do it like this? And then the final part is, uh, the surprise from the reveal is, as of tomorrow, you now follow your new rule. Because if we accept that most of the rules we've already been following were, were just the precedent of the people that came before us, if you start your new rule tomorrow, then that's it. Who will follow you? Mission-based change in organizations are fundamentally flawed. We all know that we can almost perceptibly hear the pace of disruption outside the window. Yet inside these walls, we've got no methodology to, to move as fast as the disruption outside has. And we know that classically, mission-based changes I tell you, there's not, I've got a really great idea for changing the organization. You tell me that sounds fantastic, but really you've got your own agenda. And so I should put it into a couple of slides and email it to you. And then it can die in an email thread. And so instead, what happens if I say, Vesna, I have a great idea. I'm going to put it into action tomorrow. You know, by the time you've got around to challenging me or, or, or questioning whether it should be done, I've got a couple of weeks of evidence of a new practice. And before you know it, three other people are following me. And then there's too many of us to fire. And oh, well, that's just the way things are done now. And I think that, that that is a better way right now in organizations to create change. And I do think there's a risk associated. Uh, I'm calling it professional rule breaking. My, my final measure of professional rule breaking is being a success is that you're nearly getting fired at least once a year. <laughs> That's a good rule. I read somewhere, I don't know where, that you said that uh, when you hear potentially no, hear it as go and just go, right? <laughs> yes, that's my, that's my shorthand for all of this. <laughs> and obviously only in a business setting, because, you know, in, in personal relationships, it wouldn't be appropriate. But um, in a business setting, yes. If you've got a good idea and someone tells you no, <laughs> a simple hack is just to pretend that you heard them say go. And then when they say, wait a minute, what the fuck are you doing? You're like, you told me to go. They're like, no, I didn't. I said no. But by then, chances are you've got enough of a enough of a lead on it to prove that you've got at least the beginnings of an agile approach. <laughs> but uh, Sam, going back to you, what, what would you say is your passion? You know, something that you really are willing also to suffer for if needed in any way. I asked this question in, in the book, you know, what, what values do you have that you would actually fight for? And mine would be fairness. I can't walk past someone on the street who's a complete stranger I find it very difficult in life to tolerate unfairness in front of me. Other people might interpret that as inequality or different measures, but for me, the thing that makes my blood boil, the thing that stops me in my tracks, the thing that I would fight you for and that I would risk, you know, what I've built for is unfairness. It's, it's a bit of a blocker for me. Where does that come from? Is that connected to some, let's say, transformational points in your life that have influenced you the most? I've thought about this a lot, and I didn't know what the answer was. In the early days of Liberty, which you know, Liberty's model is, to the outside world, we look like a marketing agency. We look like a very good marketing agency, actually. We've won all the awards you can win in the UK, and we've got a super cool warehouse space in a, in a now trendy area of London with lots of exposed bricks and wood floors and more Macs than the Mac store. But the coolest thing about Liberty is that it's populated by um, a community of young people, some 
who are at college and university, some who are in trouble, some who've been involved in gangs and on the edges of society. It doesn't matter to us. As long as they come here to work, we give them a, an opportunity to engage in creation, strategy, professional experience. They meet our clients who are fucking cool, like Netflix and PlayStation and others. But as young people take a massive step up in themselves and how they see the world, our clients have a transformative experience, getting close to a, an audience they rarely see in real life. And as a result, we produce uh, life-changing work. And it's great. And we've worked with hundreds of thousands of young people. And in the early days, people would ask me that, but, you know, what drives you to do that? And, and that's why I've thought about it an awful lot. Now I'm a bit older, particularly now I have children, I think that it's useful to realise that the conversations we have in business aren't honest if they're only connected to business. And I think my, my fight for fairness comes from the loss of my father when I was five and how unfair I thought that was. And I didn't process it or come to terms with it particularly well as a small child, and really into my adult life. And it was probably the journey of some soul searching, a bit of therapy, growing up, as we grew the business, realizing that it couldn't just be my own personal savior complex to fix the lives of other children. And actually you had to really think that through and be challenged on it. And then with the advent of my own children, and it's difficult because I think the narrative of business and leadership is often very textbook and, and tries to be scientific. And in so doing, it tries to remove itself from the emotion. And often, actually, emotion is seen as a sign of weakness in aspects of business. But I don't see how the two can be unlinked, really, if you really want to understand who you are and how to be good at any of this shit, whether you're trying to be good at, from an emotional strength point of view. You, know, you, you have to understand practically what you're good at. And practically, if we know what we're good at, you've got to understand what drives you. Yeah. Whenever I have the opportunity, at least, I always try to influence people within the company to make sure that they have a real blueprint of the people they have on board in the sense that they have the ability to express, you know, what are they there for? What do they love? What do they dream about? And so on. Because if you know that, you definitely know also how to, in a good way, I mean, use that talent for something good. And also you get this fantastic, I think, glue yeah, within the the organization, you know, that can pull them together and, and have a common base on, you know, ideals or progress or anything that they feel is, you know, pulling some kind of humanity factor together. These kind of organizations are the ones that are, I think, thriving. So is the excuse you think that people are not looking for this deep blueprint of people is because private life is private life and professional is professional. How on earth are we going to manage all the blueprints of all the thousands of people we have on board? What do you mean? Yeah, it's just tricky, isn't it? So I think originally it's because we we viewed it as capital. So we organized capital around the means of production or distribution. And as we've shifted into different great economic arts and move into knowledge and information, you know, if you look at it as, I know it's a bit trite, but if we look at automation, you know, the jobs that are more at risk versus those that are, the non-automatable things, the higher purpose is down to how we think and how we feel and not what we just do. I don't think we've quite worked that out. I don't think we've necessarily associated the higher value. And it's not to say there's necessarily a lower value as in you are lower than me, but the value in our emotional ability to dissect, to understand, to explore where the overlap of curiosity and emotion is. And in these spaces, surely we find the interesting answers. Why Silicon Valley moved from five years ago teaching all their children to code to now teaching them mm-hmm. philosophy. We have to find better answers whilst trying to find better questions. Because 
look around. We're a fucking mess. And as a direct result of our ways of working and our modern sophisticated democracies, and the best technology and thinking in the world doesn't yet represent a real clear solution out of this. I'm sure there is one. I'm optimistic and definitely be doing better than we are at the moment. I think we're currently letting ourselves down abysmally. So what's wrong with, with being critical about it? I mean, I really hear the argument that, well, you know, we're at the best point of humanity's existence and capitalism lifted a billion people out of poverty and you great. I wouldn't necessarily take away those advances, but where are we and where are we going with it? And is the way that we've got here going to get us where we need to go? I think the biggest mistake that we can make is to think that the way things are is the way things have to be. Mm. Or think that somebody else is going to fix it, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. No one is coming to save us right now. If that's not become clear, then Jesus. Yeah. But what would you say is like the long-term formula or solution for businesses in general? What, what do you believe in? If all the companies would ask Sam, Connie, Falende, okay, tell us in a very you know simple way, what is it that is the long-term formula? I think it uh, has to be very fundamental, and I think it's a reappraisal of growth. In the simplest terms, we are living in a world which is 60% over its biosphere capacity. So there just isn't enough shit for everybody to go around. And if we continue to produce more shit that goes into landfill, that contributes to global warming and the environmental crisis that we've got, it does not add up. I think nearly all, possibly the President of the United States, recognize the association between the negative output of our capitalist model and the environmental crisis. Now, neither one of those is going to go away. You know, capitalism has had its many upsides, the way of our economy and its ability to create change has many upsides. And the environmental crisis won't go away overnight. So how do we operate in all of our businesses in a less growth-hungry environment? What does advertising look like if the aim isn't just to sell people shit they don't need, but sell people shit that they do need? What does manufacture look like if uh, we accept that people have to pay the associated costs with manufacturing in an ethical way? What does distribution look like if we recognize that air travel is not fit for purpose until we overhaul it? You know, those are the real questions of business. And of course, it has a, a massive knock-on effect in profits. But what profit reduction or what new perspective on profit are we willing to have if it means not hitting a two-degree um, temperature increase in the world or means not having a 30 million person human migration across Europe or not having uh, environmental catastrophes month in, month out across the American continent? That's a conversation every single business can have, whether you're a one-person band or whether you're a thousand-person company. What is your perspective on a more enlightened and integrated bottom line, where money is not the only measure of our success, but with equal measure, if not more important measure, is the social and environmental cost of the way that we run our organizations. And if you're really not having that conversation, then I think you're part of the problem. Isn't it? You know, it's good line, you know, how would I put it simply? It's not just simply this is what you should be doing, this is what we need to be doing. I can't see that non-circular business, as in business that uh, has created a way to produce, distribute, create and, and, and make an entire circle of its product lifecycle in a way that doesn't detract from the world's resources. Businesses that aren't achieving that or certainly heading towards that meaningfully, I think are going to start looking like a war crime, you know, in a generation from now. 
you know, businesses that are actually taking away from the small uh, resources left that are sustaining our ecosystem. Sounds like a war crime to me already, but I, I think that's that would be my prediction 20 years on. And big companies like, for example, the Swedish IKEA or H&M and so on, given their business formula, what do you think is going to happen to these kind of companies in 10, 15 years or so? Depends. It depends whether there's a kind of, is it a quiet revolution that's going on within them? And so IKEA has incredible programs around its uh, corporate social responsibility, around trying to produce things in a sustainable fashion. And the question will be asked of those, and Henny's has been much less so, but is catching up after global criticism. How far does it go? Is it marketing? Is it CSR? Is it fundamental? Is the board willing to sign off on reduced profits? Are the shareholders willing to handle and accept reduced profits? Is every part of the ecosystem that makes that business willing to take that through the line to the point that it's a different business with different targets and a different outlook of growth? If so, then we've got the answers that we need. And then you've got business as a real force for good. If not, We've got where we are, which is a really dangerous place. Businesses that look like they're doing good, businesses that are tooting the fruit of purpose and perhaps doing it in a way that's increasing audience engagement and perhaps doing it in a way that gets them a seat at Davos, but ultimately doing it in a way that is perpetuating a very precarious status quo. That, I think, is the greatest danger we've got because most of them are well-intended, well-meant, well-designed, and, well, frankly, a step in the right direction. But if we accept that that's as far as we need to get, and good is not good enough, then really we're in a dangerous place because we haven't got the leadership that's setting down the policy to get us, or legislation to get us to the advances we need. And if we're letting business off the hook right in, really what you've got is a couple of billionaire philanthropic capitalists making unaligned statements on the world, like how Bezos has spent his millions over here, or Gates Foundation over there, or Zuckerberg's view on democracy over here, then actually it's very, very problematic. Yeah. Companies and organizations are really, I think, the best instrument for change if it's, as you say, coming from a, you know authentic, good place. But I would argue, and there's loads of you know research reports and stuff on linking the fact that if you are, so to say, a really purpose-driven company for real, not on the surface, then it is also benefiting your profits. So there is no reason to choose one or the other. Both can live together and, and thrive. So it's not like if we go purpose-driven, we need to cut the profits necessarily. It doesn't have to be from a long-term perspective. Yeah, and I, I mean, I hear that as well. I, I personally feel that. And I think the success of Liberty for me is my own, you know, you need to have these examples yourselves. You know, and I, I think the argument has been made on a, societal basis it's better i think on a financial basis there are models of it unilever will certainly point to billions of dollars worth of revenue growth for their products which are more aligned to purpose and um, the biggest organization i can think of and some of the most innovative like not what nike have done with Flyknit or tesla and and so i mean there's a lot of innovation going on. I think it's the intelligently one argument that's the right way to go forward so on all the kind of key measures yes the argument's there but the argument's not one till it's one. And I think there's a large population of the world who don't buy it, who aren't cynical, who believe that it's still shareholder value, who think that there's too much wood around it. So you and I might be there, but there's no point having an argument that's only won by an enlightened few. We need to make this the majority perspective. And who do you think that 
young entrepreneurs can look up to nowadays? I mean, somewhere I read in your book, I think it was like, not people from Silicon Valley with white teeth and quirky last names. <laughs> yes, I am a bit uh, skeptical of the over-deference to hero worship of Silicon Valley. Not that there's not great and amazing things that come out of that. Yeah, I understand that. I think the, the notion of role models amongst this generation has moved from being a what was once a kind of vertical, you know, look up to the generation that was before you, and I think it's moved horizontal. More often than not, I find young people looking to their peers um, around them, and not just within, it's not just entrepreneur looking to entrepreneurs, entrepreneur looking to artists, it's artists looking to activists, it's activists looking back to entrepreneur, and seeing other people making change, creating, taking ownership of creation, and then ownership and understanding of the means of distribution. This is a revolution that's happening so quickly, it's undocumented. It's some of the best examples we've got still feel pretty trite, like the rise of the YouTuber. But if you take away all the kind of makeup videos and, and you know the things that can be associated with YouTube, but look at it for what it is. You know, smart young people without the level of experience normally associated with it, producing high quality content and then understanding what's required to put behind marketing campaigns to reach an audience of millions and then command that position of influence to build a brand and a business. Many of them in their early 20s to the point that they're some of the most influential media players on earth. It's easy to overlook that story and put it down to Kind of, hey guys of YouTube, but the implication that that's going to come in other areas of industry and other opportunities, that's the rebellion, a, a generation not seeking permission whatsoever. And right, rightly, those should be the role models to anybody of that mindset, regardless of age, that's coming through with what comes next. And it shouldn't be done at the cost of experience for people who've been in the game for 40 years, you know, wondering what, whether they're still relevant. Of course they are, because... There's nothing as strong as instinct and that can only be earned over hard, fought, long experience. But if you combine that with this powerful naivety and the ability to create that pace, then we've got a chance of really making the kind of strides forward I think we need. If it remains in this dead man's boots notion that you don't get a chance until you've done your stripes and then you can move up in 10 years, I think we'll miss the boat in the revolution. Mm. How can we cooperate more across age borders that has been kind of created by society, uh, actually, especially in, you know, countries that are very Americanized and so on? There is this notion, you know, about that everything valuable you do and up until 50 and then you're like out, more or less. How do you work that together? I think it's a really tricky one and I don't often see as good an examples of it as you really like to. I often see fear on both sides and there's a phrase I really like that I got from my mentor Liam Black and he talks about it in terms of leaning out and so it's a kind of uh, a mirror of Sheryl Sandberg's lean in movement and he thinks it's a leadership challenge because he perceives that this new generation rushing into the space and that's good you don't want to diminish that energy but what's required from the, the leadership is not to be scared is not to try and block or put them down. It's also not to just leave. It's to gracefully lean out and create some more space, whilst also bringing your knowledge and expertise and powerful battle scars and some of the skills that you only get because you've been in the game so long. But share share the seat at the table. You know, take some risks. Let some of this, this new energy uh, rise up faster than it otherwise should. 
lean out and let them in. Perfect. I hope we'll see more more of that. I've convinced him to write the book, Lean Out, so I'm, I'm trying to help him get there, so I shall keep you posted. That's wonderful. If we dream a little bit and say that you right now have all doors open to you and you have all kinds of resources available to you that you can imagine, is there anything that you would immediately rush to innovate or change? And how would you do that? I think right now it would be politics. Why is it that democracy, as we currently know in the West, is the most resistant of all the areas of our life to technological innovation? I mean, apart from maybe the church, which isn't really the best benchmark for innovation, how come we haven't managed to make the advances? It's not only able to interact with any other product or service in, in the way that we do democracy. You physically have to show up. We just about do it by post. It's like if banking was still done only by checks, or if it was if retail, there was still only two of your favorite shops that you could go to twice a year. I mean, it's absolutely insane. And there are small pockets of it. The revolution taking place in what's known as participative democracy, where mass audiences are involved in large-scale budget-setting exercises. It's taking place in Mexico City, it's taking place in Toronto, a bit in Australia. The best example I've talked about in the book is the Sunflower Revolution in Taiwan, where like, I mean, Philip, uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, used partial exercises like this when he set his manifesto with, I think, 350,000 French citizens and therefore obviously got to a better, more robust and appealing manifesto than if it's a bunch of you know, civil service political wants. So I think things like Change.org or Avaz, you know, these large-scale political lobbying movements with mass audiences, they sometimes look naive and ineffectual, but you know, imagine they're like the large Nokia handsets of the early 90s in the advent of telecommunication technology. These plays, these platforms, are where I would look to for the advances in, much needed advances in, in democracy. So if I could bring about any kind of rebellion now, if I could I would pull the innovation that we've seen in nearly every other sector into the democratic space where I think we're being massively underserved. Interesting. And, and if you have the opportunity right now to just you know, give one main piece of advice to whoever you would call leaders, what would that be? If it wasn't going to be the, the principle of leaning out and, and find this opportunity to integrate between different generations doing things, it would go back to the book. I advocate to any leader out there to explore the notion of professional rule breaking. We are wedded to a set of practices which feel out of date and too slow to keep pace with change. It's becoming a farce. We're given the timelines by the United Nations 12 years. What organization has moved in an appropriate timeline to that? None. The announcement from two of the big airlines that they might be able to move to partial fuel over perhaps a 10-year life cycle. Or even, you know, very enlightened Unilever announcing its slow moves into non-dairy ice creams. This, pick any industry that you like, and the announcements that we make are not keeping pace with the kind of change that's required. And this because we're playing by old rules. We're playing by shareholder values. We're playing by rules that were maybe right for the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and they're not right for 2030. And we're not going to get there unless we learn how to get away with it and embrace a bit of professional rule breaking. I was asking this of someone very senior in aviation the other day. My question was, if for whatever reason 
some kind of huge regulatory breakdown, the tariff on fuel as it is was quadrupled, or even if there was no fuel, how quickly do you think the aviation industry could turn itself around to a sustainable fuel model? And their answer was probably 12 to 18 months with initial flights up within the year. With reason, the solutions that we need are achievable. If we play by the old rules, we're not going to make the change that we require in enough time. It requires nerves of steel at a leadership level to do the right thing. And like every single great hero of the last hundred years, you know, the statues that we see as we walk around our cities, the people that we look up to, most of those are there because they were willing to disobey, not obey. They were willing to challenge the status quo, not follow the status quo, because they were willing to break the rules, not follow the rules when it's required. And be the ones who can see what comes next is not going to be the best it can be by just doing what we're told. And that, for a leadership perspective, is very tough. But it's what's needed. When it becomes the, the right thing to do to do the wrong thing to do, who is going to put their neck on the line? That's so true. And that's also why it's so, I think, important for companies also to agree on that one purpose, at least, or have some kind of dream or vision in front of them that they can align and therefore understand this kind of pirate fault, so to say, behavior, so they can link it to the big cause, right? To the big job they all have together. Absolutely. That would be the next job, I think, from some of our leaders to turn those ideas into large enough consensual ideas for us to gather around. I think it's one of the big things that we're missing, you know, some very big thoughts behind which we can gather and move above and beyond the debates that we have around identity politics, which of course there's really important messages in there, but we find ourselves broadly people who agree disagreeing about the stuff we agree on. We need to rise up above that. Some of the really big, you know, we're, we're in a fight of our lives, the erosion of democracy, the preservation of our planet, the model that puts profit over people. This is the World War II of our times. And it is not to be wasted down here fighting each other over quotas. And I think that we're all hoping for these new fantastic set of leaders, right? So that somebody can show the way and so on. But eventually, my conclusion so far is that don't wait for the leaders. We are all micro leaders in ourselves. And then with the people around us, we can do things. But still, we'll see what happens. I couldn't agree with that more. I think that the notion that leadership is um, impossible to achieve, thing that only happens on a stage, you know, stuff that you get from an away day is false. The biggest, most difficult aspect of leadership is something that happens inside of you. It's in every single body, and it begins with the decision as to how you show up today. What is the one thing you're going to do today that makes a difference and actually being able to stick to it and do it, no matter what else is going on in your life? That's all leadership is. Yeah, true. And that requires a lot of, as you say, self-awareness and this kind of grit or consistency. And, and that's that's where, where people sometimes are lacking or missing out, you know? Yeah, it's because it's not easy. You're right. Grit, consistency, you know, those, these are the really, really difficult things to do. But it is what's required and it is doable. What about yourself like 10 years or something ago? Is there any advice that you would like to give yourself back then? Don't be scared. If I could have possibly moved forward, faster, further forward, the amount of time I spent worrying, being anxious, you know, what do people think in stasis because <laughs> I was worried about that. Good God. You know, and I know it's the, it's the question of our times, right? Anxiety is a rife. 
But you don't come across as an anxious uh, person at all when when we met in London. I'm less I'm less anxious now. I think I've, I think I've embraced the the urgency. But certainly, yeah, you saw me at the event where I, swe- I I got very very sweaty and nervous, and you saw that I changed my talk just before coming on. So I, I knew that I had to say something different. But I get incredibly worked up and anxious and worried about those kind of things. I still do. Uh, and always, it seems like a waste of time. You've got to try and push yourself on and through it. We, our ability as human beings to worry about eventualities that haven't even happened. I can think about an event that I'm going to do today and spend three hours before the event worrying about what might happen after the event. I mean, bloody hell. <laughs> That's not time I'm ever going to get back. And it's really hard to discipline yourself out of that. I can go back and reassure myself that most of it doesn't matter, that I'm not going to remember any of it, that the thoughts, the intentions, all the anxieties aren't going to matter at all. No one's going to remember. My daughters will never know. The people that matter to me will never have any idea. The only thing that matters is what you do, what you actually did each day, the actions you undertake. Were you a good man today, Sam? And do you know that you can stand by that? That's all it boils down to. Those half days you spend worrying, (laughs) I'm coming with you as a sum up what do you you think is the absolutely number one one thing for companies to focus on right now I would be asking myself what's my role in all of this you know in in Britain today Prime Minister just suffered a no confidence vote in the states you can't avoid Donald Trump's voice Macron's just try to reassure his people Merkel's on our way out but from, from Brazil to Bosnia at the moment we find ourselves in a state of flux and the question I'd say to any organisation any business is what's your role in this? Do you believe you have a role in this? Is this your responsibility? Is it your responsibility to think about what comes next? Is waiting for the next election all you've got? What are the edges of all of this eroding? This? Is any of this precious? And what are we going to do about it? It belongs to all of us. There is a clear lack of leadership. Leaders in business have, have as much a role and responsibility to play. When it's as fragile as this, very bad things can happen very quickly. And I'm not necessarily saying it is everyone's job. And I'm certainly not saying I don't believe in that. But I'm saying it's, it would be an important time to ask ourselves some serious questions because it's not long ago in many different countries that we lost grip and humanity is capable of awful things. These are unstable times. So I would look to anybody who feels that they're in a position of leadership and encourage them to think about this and to then think, what do I value and what do I protect? And is it is there a new source that we need to get behind and defend? Or is, is there someone in our organisation who should be running for politics that we should put forward? Or, or is there a, a community that an aspect of our community that we can strengthen in some way. You know, because these are the building blocks that make good societies and what are we doing within And I'm sorry if you don't think that's your responsibility because your responsibility is making more sausages and selling them, fine. But I think it is. I think it is our responsibility to at least ask ourselves these questions. Yeah, and from what I see, people are getting more and more aware of the fact that, you know, we're all drops of the same ocean and, and what goes around comes around and you need to kind of cooperate and take responsibility and, and be aware, really. But particularly, as you say, act for Christ's sake, do something and uh, if nothing else, discuss things and, and make things happen together. Absolutely. Inaction is a weapon of mass destruction would be my final view on that, which is a, I saw an artist uh, the weekend that I just thought was perfect. 
my, my just final question, Sam, is a, a huge one. <laughs> what do you think the world needs most at this time? I don't want to be sound scary, but I think it might be very good for us to have a little bit of uh, chaos. I mean, not that we haven't got a lot of chaos at the moment, <laughs> but when things really fail, sometimes it's better to let them fail and not try to preserve them. If you have a really, really broken situation, then perpetuating it makes things worse, whether that's a relationship or a life cycle or a product. And it's better sometimes to recognize that this is not working and then try to rebuild something new. So if democracy is flawed, if barely the majority of a country is even participating in a vote, and people with tiny, I mean, how we've got 25% or something, and we see that consistently, tiny numbers actually of democratic majorities for leaders that, that are not making decisions that are in the best interest of humanity. So perhaps if it is broken, it is scarier to carry on with a broken system than it is to start investing in new platforms and new opportunities that can grow up alongside them. And maybe it's the business as we know it isn't right for 100 years from now. We have to start growing new kinds of business. Maybe it's democracy. Maybe it's you know, some of our public institutions. And we make a mistake and we think that it's too scary or that we should be brave and continue to hold this thing together. And of course, the notions of democracy and business, I believe it. Of course I do. But sometimes I think it's, it's much easier to be brave than we think it is. And it's much more difficult to be scared and remain with a status quo that doesn't work. That's so true. And that's so true also, and I think on a personal level, that we are kind of scared of the courage and the bravery that is needed to do something. But actually, when you're there in the midst of it, you realize that there is more energy and sense of freedom and uh, light on that end than to be on this other side. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that completely. Wonderful, Sam. Okay, so... Um, our time is out. How, just out of curiosity, how was it to be uh, on the podcast? Oh, it's lovely. Thank you very much. I, uh, far too often, there's interviews with two easy questions. And I think you've absolutely gone into the micro and detail of where this is from and where it started and then asked some really, you know, those are the difficult questions. We need to be thinking like that. So I, I, I appreciate and congratulate that kind of scale of thinking. So thinking is where the scale is required. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for uh, sharing. And uh, for people who want to find out more, should they head to your website or what do you say? Yeah, I mean, I'm in most of the places that you'll, you'll find those kind of things going on and simply at Sam Conniff. Okay, great. You will also find links and show notes on uh, corporateunplugged.com slash podcast. Uh, so remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Acast. And also, of course, share this episode with your network and friends for impact. Share it with all the people you know would benefit from hearing this. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Ciao, Sam. Bye, Vincent.